Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, before we get into the show, a super quick reminder. When you leave ratings and reviews for our show, it helps us so much. Even if you don't feel like writing out a review, if you just push those stars buttons, give us a strong review, it helps other people find us. And that is so good for us. Thank you so much for all of your support. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazer. And I'm Erica Cerullo. If you want more where this came from and want to support us in general, head to a thing or two HQ.com and sign up for a secret menu, which will get you weekly access to members-only content. To share your thoughts on this episode or anything at all, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or DM us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. Erica, I just, while we were reading the intro, had an idea for a contest. <laughs> Great. Um, here's what inspired it. Because whenever I read that line, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about, I'm like accurate. And yet every time I meet a stranger and I, they say, what do you say? I do this, that, and the other. And I also have a podcast and they say, what's it about? I don't just say it's a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I have this like meandering. It's a podcast about nothing. It's like right. Seinfeld. Yeah, um, it's fine. <laughs> so I guess my contest that I would like to propose is that our listeners help us uh, describe what's about in like one sentence or less. And then the uh, the prize for the podcast is that when we describe it in the intro, we say, and as so-and-so says, yes. it is a podcast about blank, blank, blank. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a good prize. I think it's yeah. a pretty good prize. I Did mean, I don't know. Maybe prize in mind? No, I hadn't thought the prize aspect of this contest. Yeah. Um, right. You know, I, I suspected as much. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm working on the fly here. I like that a lot. I'm also willing to offer up a piece of professional enthusiast merch. Wow. I've got some laying around. Wow. Okay. Wow. Two, two, two pieces of one material yeah. prize and one um, that's really just an ego boost. Yeah. <laughs> so depending so, on how you're motivated, something for both. Submit it wherever and however you'd like, you know, DM. As long as email. we get it. <laughs> yeah. And there's no time limit. The time limit on this thing is until we find the right answer. Winner. We have such a good episode today. We Such are going to talk episode. to Mimi Chun, an artist we are obsessed with. But first, we're going to talk about department stores. 
Yes, department stores. You have visited a lot of department stores recently, I learned like, in the prep for so this episode. Many. I didn't realize it. There's a, there's like a header in the notes that says, what ones we visited recently? And I wrote down, I visited none. <laughs> <laughs> and you have four. Well, Tell me everything. We something we didn't plan to do on this episode, but we could probably spend some time doing is like debating what constitutes it's a sitcom or like, you know, what makes a short story like... One might argue maybe you have been to a department store, but... Um, what do you think gonna... I've been to that counts as a department store? I don't know. I think some multi-brand stores are kind of, you know, toe the line. I just feel like I haven't been to those <laughs> really either. Fair. Like, listen, I'm willing to be flexible, but like I haven't really been anywhere. Not like you've been to Dover Street Market, but that is one where I'm like, I don't consider I it a department store, but some people do. I people think it's always, like a mini department store. So people of always sorts. called opening ceremony a department store, and I was I think always that's like, more sure. Of a stretch. Yeah. Um, Ten course of Como, I can understand. Yes. Like, yeah. Colette, I can I could hear the mm-hmm. argument for. Yeah. Um, that yeah. that men's store I haven't in been Minneapolis. To any of those. MP3. Is that what it's called? Martin Patrick. Yeah. In Minneapolis, the men's store. That. Yeah. But they, when you said MP3 out loud, I was like, that can't be it. <laughs> that's probably not it. Yeah. But they, but that thing is more like a department store. Yeah. No, I agree with all that. I haven't been to any of them. <laughs> well, I've been to basically all of, well, not I, not all of the main department stores, but I've been, so I've been to Saks, Neiman Marcus. Uh-huh. I went to both of those in LA. And then I also went to the Saks that's like kind of the Philly Saks, but is technically in a um, a suburb of Philadelphia called Balakinwood. I've been to Bergdorf, which is owned by Neiman Marcus. So it's basically like going to Neiman Marcus in New York. And with a smaller footprint. Yeah. And I just went to the men's store. Uh-huh. of that recently. And then I went to the Nordstrom in Chicago. Yes. And all of them were honestly kind of depressing experiences with the exception of the Nordstrom. They all like didn't have enough or like they didn't have enough merchandise. They didn't have enough people and they didn't have enough staff. And some of this was supply chain issues of like- and Some of it's pandemic issues of people just yes. like, not being out in this exactly in the, in the way. Yeah. But- you know, as we know, like the problems for department stores started before the pandemic Absolutely. and the, the pandemic has just compounded it so badly. And, you know, I, yes, it's pandemic, but also when you walk down Fifth Avenue or, or Broadway and Soho, like the stores are kind of packed and people are lining up and like the department stores don't seem to be having that problem. But the reason this came up as a topic of conversation was because I had been to Chicago for a wedding Chris and I did not pack warmly enough. So we went to the Nordstrom to get warmer stuff for the wedding. And I had a delightful experience. And I was so excited to come back and tell you about how there was so much helpful staff, which was in such contrast to the department store experiences I had had previous to this, where like, I wasn't complaining because I completely understood it. I was like, I don't know how you could possibly justify hiring more people at the same time. It's so hard to find what you need or get into a dressing room. And it just kind of sucks as an experience. Nordstrom, there was plenty of helpful staff. There was such a good variety of merchandise. And not only that, but at least for men's and women's apparel, all the categories were on the same floor. All so the like, departments, if you will. All the departments. So yeah. it was like Reformation was on the same floor as Alexander McQueen. And I was just like, yes, when I go to Nordstrom and I want just a sweater that I can wear with a fancy dress, I don't care if it comes from Reformation or, I mean, I'm not buying Valentino, but like, you know, Valentino, like I just yeah. want to see everything that it has to offer. And you don't want to be like put into these like weird categories that are like contemporary and like yeah. luxury and like whatever. It's just like not how the brain works. Exactly. And 
I, I this is probably like a little bit of a result of downsizing and like the decline of the department store where they used to put these things on separate floors. But I always found that kind and they of would challenging. Have like the cusp level of Neiman yes. Marcus or whatever it was. and temporary and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bergdorf had 5F and Barney's had co-op. And like, there was certainly a purpose to that. But I kind of like this Nordstrom in Chicago just felt like the perfect size to me. I had had an experience the week before where we went shopping for a suit and shoes for Chris because he didn't have either for this wedding. Chris and had nothing for this wedding. He had nothing for this wedding. He was totally unprepared. In, you know, 2018, we would have, 2019, we would have gone to Barney's and tried on all the suits, but Barney's doesn't exist anymore. I wasn't sure what sort of suit selection Nordstrom had. So we went to the men's Bergdorf store and there was, it was just, everything was sold out in his size because of supply chain issues. But beyond that, it was all just like Brioni and Xenia and like these very sort of traditional suits. And I was like, I don't, it didn't work out. So I was like, I don't know where else to go. I think we have to start going to like the specific brand stores and we're going to be doing this all day. Which is really bop around town. And what you like would used to get out of a suit department is someone looking at Chris's body and being like, here are the three brands you should try on. And like, maybe there's even something we don't carry that I can recommend to you because that's like what a good sales associate does. And like would maybe send you to that store if they, they were out of his size. Totally. And like, and then they tailor it on the spot. And suits are like this specific category where I'm like, you don't want to be walking down the main drag popping into every single brand store no. and trying on their suits. It's just like not how this- It's also too much taking your clothes off. off. Yeah. Like on top of everything else, it's a lot of taking your clothes off. It is. So I was just like, wow. I it, And it struck me in that moment. I was like, right. Suits is one of these categories is really impacted by the decline of the department store because you're not probably buying most of your suits online. And if you're not a guy who wears suits every day and like knows exactly what suit you like, you're kind of screwed in this situation. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. I want to talk about like where Nordstrom's was and where it has landed and like mm-hmm. why it was such a good experience for you. So I feel like I've always like, ha- my, that's been my family's preferred department store <laughs> uh-huh. since, for my, since as long as they existed in the Midwest, basically. Yeah. And I was like th- thinking like, what was the appeal of like yesteryear Nordstrom? Like what was mm-hmm. the like sell there? And the first thing that came to mind was that they would walk around the counter and give you the bag, mm-hmm. which was like just this like different service of being like, I'm treating you like a person I'm interacting with and not like yeah. someone we need like a counter in between for all well, of Well, it's our- also very much like a luxury store. Yes. Habit, I think. Yes, totally, totally. Um, And then the most like specific, like known thing is probably the return policy, Mm -hmm. which is like a legend. Yeah. And I was remembering, you know, the story of like the person returning a set of tires. Yes, yes. And, you know, like many years ago, somebody shows up to a store with tires. Nordstrom has never sold tires. There's no receipt or like anything like that, of course, because they didn't sell the tires. But they were still given a refund for the tires. And like, that's the return policy. And apparently it's true. Like apparently the co-presidents of Nordstrom are like, yes, that happened at a store in Fairbanks, Alaska in the mid 1970s, which is just incredible, incredible. And then the shoe department obviously Mm -hmm. was such a thing, like to the point where when Saks redid its New York store in 2007, Mm -hmm. part of the like marketing was the shoe, a shoe department so big, it got its own zip code. This really left an impression on me. And the reason that I know that is because our friend who got married recently a guy called me like a week before the wedding and was like, I'm in the city and I'm like desperate for a pair of shoes and I don't know where to look. Where should I go? And I was like, 
Oh, well, like socks, I guess. Like I could, I, because I was like one oh two two shoe. Like that, I could bring it up immediately because I didn't know because I had just had the same problem the week before. And I was like, you should try Nordstrom. I was like, go to Saks first and then go to Nordstrom. But I know that Saks is really braggy about their shoe department. So you may as well take them up on that. One oh two two shoe is hilarious. It's so good. It's not a zip code. It's a zip code <laughs> extension. Like it's well, not a like, shoe. it's not like, well, no, but yeah, well, but zip codes extensions are a thing. They're like, this is the oh, hyper sure. specific but, zip code but extension. that's not a yeah. zip code. Like our two blocks have a zip code extension. <laughs> like I also want to know what the process is, like was getting that zip code extension. Like I would read the Fast Company article mm. of like them having to appeal to USPS yeah. to be like, will you do and can it be S-H-O-E? So you think they actually did that and it's not just a a marketing shtick? Let's send a pack. Let's send a return. <laughs> no address, just 1022 <laughs> shoe and it should get there because they have their own zip code. Great point. They shouldn't need any other information from us. I'm interested to know if they really got their own zip code. I just assumed it was just a little bit of a joke. I don't know, Claire. Let's send the packer. Let's try it. Let's try it. Like mailing somebody to the fucking North Pole. Thank you so much to Nutrafol for sponsoring today's episode. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that Nutrafol is a long, longtime partner of ours. And there's something um, that we're excited to share is that they actually have two formulas now. So there's Nutrafol Women, which is great if you have thinning hair or just want thicker hair that is caused, you know, that you're dealing with like stress and dieting and overstyling and environmental toxins and all of those contributing factors. And then there's also Women's Balance, which is formulated with additional hormone support if you are dealing with thinning hair because of menopause. Um, and as someone who does not have just like naturally thick, lush hair, I feel like that's the thing I need to like put the pin into of just like, oh, right. Like menopause, this is, a, this is a feature, but that like, this is an option when that time comes to be able to like support yourself um, while you're going through these changes and not, you know, not just be like, oh, like an, yet another thing, yet another part of, of being a woman. And there's a quiz on your site. So you go and tell them what you're dealing with and they'll tell you like, here's the right product for you. Here's what you should do. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth by targeting the five root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. It is made of natural, clinically effective, medical grade botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. And it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free. On top of thicker, stronger hair without lasers or chemicals, Nutrafol's ingredients may also help you get a handle on better sleep, stress, skin, nails, and libido. When you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. 77% of women saw improvements in just 90 days. Even if you aren't experiencing thinning hair, Nutrafol can help you grow thicker, stronger hair. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code a thing or two for $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere and it is only available to US customers for a limited time. Plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code a thing or two. Have you ever found weird things in a vagina? Have you found yourself needing multiple partners to fulfill your desires? Hey guys, I'm Dr. Jacqueline Walsh, a board-certified OBGYN. It is so important that we know how and when to ask the right questions, whether you're in front of your doctor or just hanging out with your good girlfriends. Now, I wanted to create Dr. Jackie's point of view because sometimes you need to just hear the unfiltered good old Dr. Jackie. 
I will inspire, uplift, and educate women and men on the who, what, when, and where of things we balance daily. Make sure you subscribe to Dr. Jackie's Point of View and tune in every Thursday. Anyway, so Nordstrom, the things that for for me kind of went wrong over the last decade or 15 years, um, part of the issue was that they didn't have a store in New York and they didn't open one until October of 2019, which basically like, <laughs> you know, that, that right. six months weird timing. before. Yeah, weird timing. Yeah. And it felt like the sales were such a thing, but like to the point where they were like almost the only time that people were shopping. Mm-hmm. And my mom loves the sales and like loves the, the annual sales. Yeah, yeah. semi-annual sale, the anniversary mm-hmm. sale. I couldn't tell you the difference between right. like all of them except that the anniversary sales in July. And thus I would get like extremely urgent phone calls to like about what I wanted for Christmas, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what sweater I would want from Nordstrom for, yeah. yeah. So stressful. They never had the brands I wanted them to have. So when I was sent down these rabbit holes of like, find a Nordstrom sweater that you want, it was like, just no. Mm -hmm. And it just like, and like, they were such mall fixtures and like the mall was, you know, the mall was what the wallet mall is. Yeah. Um, but what's, but what but I changed? do feel like, well, okay. I do feel like in general Nordstrom more than any of these department stores has like had a fighting chance because they've yes. been so aggressively sort of trying to get ahead of the decline of the department store. Like in 2011, they acquired Outlook, which was a guilt group competitor. In 2014, they acquired Trunk Club, which is sort of like a stitch fix competitor specifically for men. And then like eight years ago, I want to say they hired Olivia Kim, who was this sort of like hot shit buyer from opening ceremony who has just done such good work there to make Nordstrom relevant for a younger audience, really, who's like not normally shopping at department stores. And she introduced this thing called Pop-In, which is like pop-ups and brand activations and space, which um, is all these emerging brands that you would just never expect to find at like an old school department store like Molly Goddard and Cecily Bonson, Stein Goya. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I was so impressed by that section when I went to the Nordstrom in Chicago. I was like, whoa, I didn't, this is great. Like, I didn't think I'd find this in, you know, here at all. And I think I'd have to go scouring at a boutique for this. And that was like her influence was definitely mm-hmm. the turning point of where I was like, oh, there are now like brands on yeah. this website because um, I, you know, didn't have access to a store that are like interesting to me or that I like want to want to be like browsing. They also, I don't know if they're still doing this, but I know that at some point they had set up physical locations where you could return your e-com purchases. And they'd also like, there's one it, in the West Village or like Greenwich Village. Yeah. yeah. And they had just, like, it was just clear that they were like, that they'd anticipated that this was going to, that department stores were going to struggle basically. And they seem to be getting ahead of it before most department stores. They also have aggressively partnered with influencers to drive the e-com business, which this year it was (laughs) revealed that influencers were like revolting against sort of things that you have to do in order to promote Nordstrom semi-annual sale. Cause I guess like they all rely on it as like a huge revenue generator for themselves Hmm. every year. It's like the way theaters rely on Christmas Carol. Like, Oh my God. To part Keep like blog influencers rely on the Nordstrom semi annual sale. Love this rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, it's like Amazon Day, but for yes. Nordstrom. Yeah. But all of these, but I think Nordstrom has like made it so complicated and maybe even like expensive for them to like get involved. Like I think mm. they actually have to buy a certain amount of stuff. I don't know. It's very confusing and not interesting enough to me to actually learn it all, the intricacies of all of it. But yeah, I'm curious because I, to see what happens now, but I basically, I think that Nordstrom is going to be the one to come out on top of all of these sacks, just to introduce sacks work, which is like co-working spaces in sacks department stores. So that's their like 
last ditch effort. But all of these places are really struggling. Like I feel like there's I there's like such a loss in the fact that Barney's doesn't exist anymore. And it's hard to say, I mean, it's e-com obviously is one of the things and none of these people like got ahead of e-com. It's like the destruction of like wholesale in general because- And multi-brand. And multi-brand retailers because it's not like, it's not as if like- Because of margins, margins. Yeah, margins. It's not as if like Outdoor Voices is responsible for the decline of the department store. It's that like these just became- outdated and irrelevant and they always sucked and they always sucked for the designers and the brands and and the designers and the brands started to be given tools to sell directly and didn't need to rely on the department stores as much and they went beholden yeah and then the you know customers don't need to rely on them as much either but what I think now is you're going to have all of these categories that are like suits like denim where yeah. also you want to be like the Barney's denim bar. Remember that? Yeah, like such course. a thing. Yeah. Like shoes where I think you do actually need and want a department store style shopping experience. I think those categories are really going to suffer and I will be shocked. I think housewares too is mm-hmm. something I was thinking about. Like I, if someone recently was saying that they were like trying to buy like a non-Caspery mattress and like mm-hmm. wanted to go like try mattresses without mm-hmm. going to like a mattress firm or whatever. And yeah. like, you know, the department stores, that's where you used to do that. Totally. Um, oh my God. Yeah. We didn't even talk about Bloomingdale's, which that was my department store when I was a kid. Mm. Like I thought Bloomingdale's was the height of luxury. And I loved going up to that top floor with all the mattresses. I don't know why. I just And, you know, Corduroy has a very yeah. transformative experience in the mattress of level, the department store. One. But what I think we're going to see happen, or like my prediction is that some like entrepreneurial person will be like, I'm going to start a multi-brand suit store that's like just the suit section of a department store. I'm going to start a multi-brand denim store that's just the denim section of a department store. And we're basically going to like reverse engineer the department store the way that like everybody talks about how Substack and the newsletters are like reverse engineering blogs. I really think we're just going to reverse engineer our way back to department stores because they actually do serve a purpose and especially for certain cat product categories. Well, yeah, because there's also this idea that like it's for discovery, right? You go for discovery and you get exposed to things and otherwise you're like in your Instagram feed and being like, what is this brand? Is this a trustworthy brand or is it just like a ad? And like right. how many friends have we had those with of just like how am I supposed to find things besides paid Instagram? Like that's like so shitty. Um, What was I going to say? Oh, when you're talking about reverse engineering department stores and these like, you know, departments of standalone Mm -hmm. things, is that what like Fred Siegel was too in the seventies? Maybe. Yeah. For for denim. denim. Yeah, Yeah. possibly. That makes sense. I mean, I would be, and, and yeah, I think Fred Siegel is another one of these things where I'm like, I think it considers itself a department store. Yeah. And like, it kind of is. And I, what I, the thing is that like, to me, I'm like, I would be so excited about a store that just like did a really good job amassing and curating a ton of denim or a ton of suits or whatever it was, like these hyper specific product categories. You could go there and you needed that. But I know that on the business side, what happens once you start doing that, you're like, well, if we're already selling denim, I guess we got to bring we t-shirts too. Or we we got to make, make our, our own, own denim. Yeah. yeah, yeah like, yeah, yeah. and so you start, but like, I do think you end up becoming, I don't think you can like stop yourself from evolving into yeah. that. I mean, maybe not, but I like, I do think these things would just eventually become department stores because you understand why Fred Siegel added a beauty counter and why, you know, like all 100%. these people did this stuff. I'm also interested in beauty because I actually don't know that that needed ever to be part of a department store. Like, I'm curious about your take on this because 
Did people bop around to different beauty counters and get your lipstick from one place and your mascara from another? Or would you just, Mm. I feel like back then you would just go and you'd get everything from Clinique or everything from. I think that's probably true. But then I also do think that when I worked at a department store in high school um, and early college, mm-hmm. the like makeup counter, the women who worked at the makeup counters would be friends with each other. And mm-hmm. sometimes it would be like, oh, actually the like Estee Lauder eyeliner would like work really well with it. Like there would be a little bit of like yeah. pushing people, like urging people to try other things, like not aggressively, obviously, because they wanted their commission and whatever. But if someone wasn't finding something that they liked right. and they're like, nothing was scratching the itch, I feel like it was like, I don't know, a little bit of that. Well, and I guess like Sephora and Ulta and Credo in these places just like have really filled that hole. And so you yes. don't need like the beauty level department store because they are, they're, they're my fantasy version of what I want for suits and denim. Yeah. Honestly. I guess my question though is, does beauty as a category work for that in a way that shoes or denim or whatever doesn't? Because if you're a beauty brand, it's a consumable. So people are going to buy like shampoo now and then they're going to buy shampoo in three months and blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 on and on until the end of time. Can they justify being at a multi-brand retailer because they think like, oh, people are going to discover my product here, but then they're going to shop directly for me. And like, thus it makes sense as a marketing play. I don't know. I mean, I think all wholesales and market, marketing yeah. play yeah. to some extent, but I- For sure, for sure. But for I, sure. it's a good question. I mean- the the other thing besides wholesale being a marketing play that definitely works for beauty brands is that it increases your volume and so you get economies of scale. And like, that's definitely the case with beauty who has presumably these really high factory minimums that they have to hit True. to use their product. And maybe less for shoes. Yeah, maybe less for shoes, but probably for denim, I would yeah. assume that's yeah, a big yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's super interesting. Like, can you replicate the Sephora model for these other categories? I don't know. I didn't, I do think like, Denim is certainly, once you discover the brand, you often go back and buy again and again. Totally. I, I totally. agree with like what you said though about like, it, besides just the ease of the stuff, discovery is so exciting at a, par- at a department store yeah. and at any multi-brand retailer really, where you're like, I wasn't going to buy this thing, but then I saw it and wow, it's like cool. And now I know about well, this new or brand. Or even just like, I saw this brand I hadn't seen before yeah. and I saw it in person and it was really cool. And like, I didn't have to walk into their store to do that or like depend or like place an order on the internet for a thing that I had never looked or felt like never seen or touched before, have it shipped to my house and then make a decision. Like that's rough. Yeah. I don't know. Curious to see what happens. I I would like department stores to stick around slash come back in some capacity. And I, you know what else? Okay. One more thing about this that why I like... I'm surprised that department stores haven't figured it out is everybody just cares about experiences now. And like department stores can give you the experience in a way that these other people cannot. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's continue our theme of late capitalism. Let's do it. We're going to bring on Mimi Ochan, who, wow, we just love her so much. We actually encountered Mimi. She's a graphic designer and an artist. And we first encountered her when she was mostly focused on graphic design. And I will like toot Mimi's horn here and say that I feel like the work she did on like General Assembly, for example, is, was really helped like establish a certain like 2010s graphic design vibe, something that I will forever feel insanely proud of and probably like brag to my kids about is that we did these tote bags with Mimi um, really early on at Of A Kind. And we were just like, we need canvas tote bags. Could you design something for us? And she she was like, I've had this idea for a while that I've wanted to do where basically like I would do a circle, but I would call it an estranged polka dot. I'd do a line, but I'd call it an abandoned stripe. Then I'd have a square, but I'd call it an alienated check. 
So we were like, yeah, let's do that. So we printed these three styles of tote bags that had each of those hilarious so jokes on them. <laughs> so good. Um, and now she's like really, um, she's still designing, but she's been doing these beautiful artworks, these like cloth sculptures that are really commentary on hipster culture, on capitalism, on Instagram on culture. Habits, yes, on all of it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. somebody very wise recognized that they'd make an amazing museum show. So she now has her first museum show at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art. It's called It's All Cake. And it's running through January 2022. Hi, Mimi. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me. We're so thrilled. I mean, we've been following your work for such a long time, Mimi. And this is the first time in my life that I was ever just like so sad that I didn't live in Phoenix. Um, <laughs> and I have two it's friends <laughs> who live in like the Phoenix and Scottsdale area and was immediately like, let me write them a two paragraph email about why they need to go see this show. Oh, that's so oh. nice. Ugh. Ugh. Um, yeah, just a dream. How do you describe the work that you do? So I generally... You know, usually I say that I have, I maintain two practices. One is a freelance design practice in which I'm doing either brand work or product design work, digital product design work. And then I also have a fine art practice. And um, the two of them are uh, distinct, but in some ways feed off of each other. So in terms of the artwork, I generally, they're 3D, they're sculptures. I make soft sculptures generally out of fabric. They're fiber-based. I think of them a little bit like political cartoons. Generally, they are like three-dimensional political cartoons in that they're drawing from, typically drawing from something that's happening, uh, like a social or cultural phenomenon that's happening in the world. So I tend to be kind of reactive to sort of what's happening in the moment. Um, but they also, I usually try to bake in a little bit of a sense of humor to them. I would say a lot of bit of a sense of humor. <laughs> At I least just like I experienced them. <laughs> it's so funny. I appreciate that. Well, because yeah. like you're describing them as political sort of surprised me, even though it's accurate. I just, if somebody, if I were describing them to somebody else, I'd just say they're like sort of your personal like critique in some ways, which is not political. I just experience them as these like, funny, but sharp and sometimes really moving and like insightful commentaries. Yeah. They're just, I think you're knowing that you have a background in design and having no, followed your work for so long makes it all the more fulfilling because there's this sense that you have interacted with all of these design objects that you're recreating in this really intimate way. And so your perspective on them is always one I want. I'm like, Mimi has a really sophisticated sense of like what's happening in the world and the design world. So yeah, I want her take on Oatly and like where that fits into all of this. <laughs> can you yeah. can you explain um, for a little more context, a few of pieces that you've been excited about recently that sort of hit these notes? Sure. So let's start with the Oatly one. So yeah. I created a piece called Museum of Oat Dreams. And what you see when you come upon it is, it's called Museum of Oat Dreams for one. Um, it's a replica of an oatly car a half gallon carton of oat milk but it's on its side and I've scaled it up and replicated it in fabric to be oh, nearly six feet in length and then it's laying on its side there's like a spill of oat milk and there's a a swim ladder positioned on it and this was in many ways inspired by the museum of ice cream and color factory these sort of I don't know, 3D experience. Instagram museums. Yeah. yeah. Instagram museums that, <laughs> and that really are just selfie backdrops. And so I, you know, this, this particular piece speaks to 
like a number of things happening within culture, like the rise of alt milks, the rise of alt milk having like, you know, crazy fans. And then this idea of, it was inspired mainly by the Museum of Ice Cream's sprinkle pools, which is kind of like a signature feature in each one of their locations. So I was like, what's the sort of alt milk version of that? Well, it would be this sort of like brownish spill of oat milk on the floor. And so that's essentially what I tried to create. And then it's for one because it's scaled, you know, it's scaled down. It's enough for one person to sit in and take a selfie. (laughs) I love it. Was a museum show something that was ever on your mind when you were designing this stuff? Did it feel like an end goal or was it like, oh, wow, this was unexpected? Having a museum show feels a little bit like I got away with something. Like I I skipped a few steps. I somehow cheated the system because I think most artists work, you know, they make work that may never see the light of day. They work hard to sort of get gallery representation. And then from there, if they're lucky, you know, they might have a piece in a show before, um, you know, ultimately having any sort of museum show. I just happened to be incredibly fortunate in that this particular curator took a leap of faith and thought about what would resonate with her audience at a particular moment in time. And that's how the show happens. When you have a relationship with a gallery, you essentially are trying to have a relationship with collectors, which is quite different from having a relation, direct sort of dialogue with the public, which is what a museum allows you to do, which is, and it feels very natural. And it's really in some ways what I've always tried to do through Instagram too. So I want to create work that resonates with people regardless of sort of what relationship they have to the art world. And so, yeah, so the museum, having a museum show really enables me to to do that. Thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. I was talking to a friend recently who had just started seeing a therapist after being out of therapy for so long. And she said that the thing that it reminded her of right away was that there's all of this stuff that she knows to be an issue or a problem or a pattern. And yet just having someone else point it out to you is so helpful. She's like, it's just in my head. Like I know all this stuff, but then talking to someone and having them say that they recognize the pattern too, or they recognize something as a challenge for me, just completely shifted the way she thinks about it. And I think it's so true. It's like, you can feel like you're fine and you can feel like, you know, what you have to work on, but it's sort of impossible to realize how helpful it is to talk to someone, particularly a professional about it until you start doing it. Totally. Talking to a licensed therapist can help you feel better. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional counseling service done securely online so you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. They have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states and four modes of communication. So you can text, chat, talk on the phone, or do a video call. You can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours and schedule weekly secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Anything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're not happy with your counselor, you can just request a different one. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors as needed. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash a thing or two. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash a thing or two. Thank you so much for supporting the sponsors who make it possible for us to bring you the show every week. Thank you so much to Girlfriend Collective for sponsoring today's episode. Erica, I know you recall um, when I was pregnant, me spending so much time 
whining and complaining about how none of the activewear lines made maternity activewear or none of like the main ones that I went to. And it was crazy to me, one, because it was like frustrating on a personal level, but also it just seemed like such a big opportunity. A hundred percent. And like the idea was like, oh, just buy like a couple sizes bigger or shop in the men's department or like whatever. That was like supposed to be the answer to the question as though that's what pregnant bodies are like. And I have to say Girlfriend Collective just earned so many points with me for being one of the first to move into maternity activewear and to do it in a really comprehensive way. And it also gets amazing reviews. One of our friends got it and said that the nursing bra, the nursing sports bra has been a game changer for her. That is something I would have absolutely killed for when I was pregnant and like would get on the treadmill and then Cam would wake up and then I'd have to like get off the sweaty sports bra to breastfeed. It's just very exciting that they're thinking about all types of bodies and that they have since the very beginning. They have extra, extra small to 6XL. They have this maternity stuff. They're just, I just think they're approaching it in the right way. Girlfriend Collective is sustainable, ethically made activewear for everyone. Their best-selling leggings are squat-proof, come with pockets, and have different levels of support, whether you want compression or comfort. They use recycled materials to make their clothing. Their shipping is 100% recyclable, and they provide an ethical work environment for the people who make your clothes. Join the collective today and feel good about what you buy and comfortable in what you wear. For listeners of the show, Girlfriend Collective is offering $25 off purchases of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash a thing or two. That's $25 off $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash a thing or two. Be sure to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. That's girlfriend.com slash a thing or two for $25 off your purchase of $100 or more. Thank you so much for supporting the brands that support us by using unique links and codes they create for our listeners. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process of actually creating your work? Where are you starting? What's your starting point? So I think, I mean, I would say like I'm a voracious consumer of media and like whether it's podcasts, whether it's books, magazines, blogs, whatever it might be. I mean, I think we all are to some extent, social media, all of it. So I think, you know, (laughs) I actually have a, I think it's like my to-do list app in my in my, on my iPhone, it's basically, I have a to make list and it's me literally jotting down thoughts when they yes. come to me and then later reviewing it when I have a, you know, a moment in time in which I can make, I look through, I think about what I'm excited to make. And I try not to be super, I try not to censor myself too much before executing an idea. I can, I'm happy to censor myself once I've made something of like, oh, this might not feel right, or it might not resonate in the way that I intended. So I can nix it then. But when it comes to making, like I try to sort of clear the runway to like, just go straight into, to making. So I'm often inspired by, so it could be something that happens in the news. Like I want to do for right now, like as an example, like right now, I've been thinking a little bit about the spotted lantern fly. Mm-hmm. Of course. That everyone of course. like has. Like, that we're supposed to kill. Exactly. <laughs> like we all have this directive to kill the <laughs> spotted lantern fly and like just how kind of absurd that is. But like, so yeah, so I've been thinking about that. I also thought about it relative to the fly that was like in Mike Pence's hair at one of the debates, like, you know, these things, like they just kind of connect themselves to, you know, in some way. So I don't fully know exactly what's going to come of that, but I think there will probably be a piece around the lantern fly at some point. I sometimes will sketch just through collages and whatnot, digital collages. I'll kind of sketch, get a sense of scale. If it's a mashup of elements, I want to make sure that those have like kind of the right relationship with one another. And then 
really, and sometimes I don't even sketch, but then I just like sort of go into to making and building. And I have a weird thing where I try not to think, I try... I try to get things right the first time, which I know is like really what you're not never supposed to do as an artist. Um, you're supposed to like, you know, do a lot of studies and then like find the find the right form. I always feel like my limiting factor is time. So I want the time that I have to be used very effectively. So I I end up like thinking through things a lot in my head before I actually commit to, you know, when my hands are free up that I can sort of go straight into making. So that's typically like how I work. How big are these things? So some of the pieces, like the Museum of Oat Dreams that I mentioned, that one is, um, it's probably like total, it's probably like seven feet by three feet. So it's there like a small a, coffee table, would you say? A large coffee a large table. Co- yeah, yeah seven large feet is a large <laughs> coffee table. Yeah. So a large I was, human. I was yeah. going to ask you to not use numbers because that's not, that right. doesn't work well for me personally. <laughs> it's probably like a dining table. Okay. Wow. So that's huge. I have to break things into component parts and then work on little bits of a t- at a time. Otherwise it's probably too overwhelming to think about all of the steps that are going to go into making something. So Yeah. I mean, I think about oftentimes a piece is made up of a ton of smaller pieces that are maybe installed in a way that takes up a large area. So I made Uberlift XL, which is 20 pigeons on drones, um, 20 pigeons on, I think, 17 drones, because there's a couple where they're coupled up. And that is, you know, it's, that was a piece that I worked on where I would fill in some time. Like if I was in between design projects, I would work on a pigeon and I would, you know, and it sort of allowed me to fill in some gaps of time and always be moving the thing forward without necessarily having like, you know, like blocked off a couple of months to work on a project. When you say work on a pigeon, can you explain what the process of actually constructing these pieces is like? Sure. So with a pigeon, I think the pigeon is actually one of the few forms or the few sculptures I've made where I've actually patterned. Generally, I don't pattern because I'm too impatient. But with a pigeon, I figured out, you know, if I think of each pigeon is maybe like its body is like maybe seven or eight different pieces that end up getting stitched together. So the side, the leg, the 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 neck and the head. So those all form the body there's, um, I want these pigeons. Oftentimes I work a lot with armature wire, which is just like flexible aluminum wire. So it gives the pigeon a little anima. It gives him a little, like, you know, allows him, allows you to sort of like point his feet in certain ways. I don't know why the pigeon's male, but he's male. Um, (laughs) so yeah, so I'm then I'm bending the wire, I'm stitching the feet out of felt. And then the feathers are, you know, there's like the black stripe on the gray fabric. I cut, I basically, um, paint a single black line on a piece of gray fabric. I cut out all the feathers and then the feathers are stitched onto the body of the bird. And that's basically the pigeon. Oh my God, Mimi. (laughs) It's really like remarkable to think about doing 17 of those. Yeah. uh, 20, 20 pigeons. Sorry. 20 pigeons. Mm -hmm. Okay. How did you start doing these? Is this, is this something you've always done or it was this one day you were like, I'm sick of the computer and I got to start you know, creating these stuffed animals that are art? Um, That's a good question. I think, well, I think the first series that I did was Stuffed Tipster Emblems, which is a series in which I was making replicas. I was thinking about 
all the factors that let, like all the factors that contributed to something hip, hipster, this was, I don't know, this was 2013, 2013. It was when the word hipster it. was like really top yes. of mind. And yeah. it was, it was all about like, you know, it was about the Mass Brothers, like chartering like a ship and sailing it down to like, look at, you know, single origin coffee beans. It was about one-offs. It was about small batches. It was about the handmade. It was about... It was about toast. (laughs) Yes, it was about toast. But I started looking at all of those things, like the provenance and the, and the single batch and, you know, the scarcity, all of these things and thought, what if I made the smallest batch of a small batch of, you know, of something produced in small batches? So I started making one-off replicas of different things that were sort of emblematic in our culture of being sort of hipster. And um, it made sense to make replicas of them out of like, you know, organic cotton. So that's kind of, you know, where I started. Um, And I found that working in fabric was actually really gratifying for me and also something that could be done in a small New York apartment without having to worry about ventilation or, you know, it was just, it was practical and (laughs) non-toxic, essentially. Are people ever offended by your artwork? That's a really, that's interesting. I've had people have, get squeamish about things. Like I had made this tableau of like stuffed meats at one point and I had a friend say, oh, it's like, it's kind of gross. It's kind of like, (laughs) I don't know. She was like not, she was freaked out by it. But in terms of people being offended, I mean, I think I do cite specific brands and that it's not always laudatory. In fact, many times it is somewhat critical, um, the use of those particular brands, but I, I view it as like, not necessarily, I mean, yes, there's like the critical, there's being critical of Oatly, which has, you know, investment from Blackstone, which is known for sort of, you know, deforesting the, um, the Amazon, right? So there's critical in that sense, but then there's also critical of, us as a culture, like what are we doing that enables these things to have, like what are the pressures on Oatly to raise $200 million to take money from Blackstone, right? Like, you know, these are the things that I think I'm more, much more interested in are the broader sort of cultural forces rather than the particulars of specific brands. I think that's, it's like funny because I think I just feel implicated by your artwork, but because I read all of you're writing about them. I know that you also feel implicated by it. And so I don't take offense, but I just think it's like, I'm curious as it gets a broader audience, how people sort of see themselves reflected in it. And if they're uncomfortable with it, or if they have enough self-awareness to sort of laugh at it. Well, the like implication is like in this way, like another shade of scene, like yeah, you feel seen that by true. it. And they're yeah, like, no, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it's funny, something I hadn't thought about, but that you just raised is this idea that like, Oatly's probably not going to hire you to do any design work for them anytime soon, which is, who cares? Like, you're fine. But is there ever that thought in your mind of like, oh, fuck, I'm also a designer and that also pays the bills and I can't piss off every brand? I think, um, not really, I have to admit. But I also like, I think that, I mean, I think even when I was like a really young designer, like out of school, I had certain sort of parameters. Like I knew that like, I didn't want to work for, you know, I got approached to work on certain projects that I've, I've turned down for various reasons. Like I won't do like any big pharma stuff or I won't do things that are, um, 
you know, that I feel like are conflict with my own personal set of values. Um, and there's, there's so much design work out there um, that, and there are so many brands and companies like trying to do the right thing that it's never been, I feel like I, you know, obviously have the privilege of being able to sort of make those choices, but I don't think it's, it hasn't been a, a problem for me. Are there any things that while you're working on them, that like topic feels like it becomes overripe, you know, like it just like takes on like too much for it to even fall into something that you'd want to work on? Oh, that's interesting. I think the things that I, when you said overripe, like I thought more of like things that have been sort of like maybe discussed enough or like there've been enough hot takes or enough, like that I'm not necessarily like adding anything to the conversation. Um, and those are things that, um, you know, I probably would avoid. This particular body of work in the show references this sort of divisive political climate. While I am sort of responsive to the moment, that moment is an era versus a single <laughs> moment in time. Like, I think, you know, I didn't do anything that specifically represents, like, reference Trump, for instance, or I didn't, I did a piece that's around QAnon, but it's it's really about the rabbit hole and it's about conspiracy theories like writ large rather than a particular sort of incident. So, yeah, I think smaller flashes of moments, you know, things that are too niche, things that are too specific. I Yeah, yeah. those are not things that I generally will work on. How important is it to, to you that your work is funny? I think it's a big part of what I try to do because it's the thing, you know, I'm making these like big dumb plush things. Right. And so you immediately, I want them to be approachable. I want people to see them. I don't want people to sort of turn away and not examine them. And humor is just another device that you can use to draw people in. But you're right in terms of like, to your earlier question around whether the pieces are offensive, like, yeah, there's a bit of that. There is a bit of like, I'm laughing at myself. I'm laughing at all of us we're laughing together. We're laughing and slapping ourselves at the same time, I guess. Like there's a little bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's, we all need. Truly. <laughs> it's such a good answer though, about the humor being the approachable part. And I think it helps me under like sort of articulate for myself part of what I think is so amazing about your work, which is that it is impossible to turn away from like, you're like, this is giant stuffed animal. I really want to go see it, but it is also technically so impressive and also just I guess, uh, cerebrally, it's just so impressive as well. Like there, it it sort of works on every level, um, which makes it really enjoyable. And like, not that I really believe in the idea of a guilty pleasure in general, but it doesn't feel like a guilty pleasure, even though sometimes artwork that is a giant stuffed animal does like, okay, I'll say like Jeff Koons is kind of a, a guilty pleasure in that way. And you're like, well, it's just like a giant thing. Right. But yours has so much more depth to it. I was just thinking about how when you had your gallery show in New York a couple years ago, I took my cousin who was probably like 16 at the time and she's like very interested in art, but had definitely never been to anything that would qualify as a gallery show before. And I think was very intimidated conceptually by the idea of going, but then like you walk in and it's just like, 
you just draw people in and your work just draws people in in this way that like you can't be intimidated by it. Like it's a super, it's a stuffed super soaker of LaCroix cans and like you have to just walk toward it. There's like (laughs) nothing else to do. That's great. I think, yeah. I mean, I always want there to be sort of like multiple readings to the work. I mean, I, you know, just having mounted the show at Smoka, like I've been seeing, you know, people have been tagging me and they've been taking their kids to the show. It's like The Simpsons. Like there's multiple readings. You can enjoy it sort of viscerally or, um, or, you know, just on, on one level, but then hopefully there are others who sort of discover other narratives to the work. Something else that we have like love following about you is that you have such a creative family and your mom's paintings are amazing and your sister's ceramics, we, which we sold on of a kind back in the day. How do you think growing up around people who are also making and, and, you know, being, having that in your family now has shaped your work and, and what you do? It's funny. I think at the baseline, I think having a family that really supported and encouraged making and art was like such a blessing. Like I always, whenever I, and, you know, dragged me to museums when I was, when I was little, like in cons, I was like overexposed in some ways um, to (laughs) all the art happening in the world. Like I'm super grateful for that. Like I meet friends who are artists and, you know, I'm, generally curious as to what their family, you know, what their upbringing was like. And they'll come from like a line of scientists or whatever. And I'm always like, oh, you actually worked really hard to discover this side of you. Whereas like for me, like it was like the path was paved in that regard. But then on the other, like on the other other hand, one thing that I think is interesting that I always talk with my sister Miro about, she's a ceramicist who works under, Miro made this as her, as her company name, but she and I always talk about how You know, my sister, for instance, threw ceramics for like seven or eight years before she felt like confident enough to actually sell a piece, which is not necessarily sort of the prevailing sort of ethos today. It's like you take one class in Brooklyn for like on a Saturday and you're suddenly like you've got your Shopify up and running. And so I think like having been exposed to like my mom who was a painter her entire life, like, you know, had gallery representation, sort of put her art career on hold to raise my sister and I. And then sort of the minute she got us out of the house and off to college, she was like back in the studio again. Like having, seeing that sort of like lifelong commitment to something was really inspiring for me, but also like informed my like perspective on like what it means to really like hone your craft and really like work on it in a way that your ne- your best work is always ahead of you. Mimi, we've talked some of on this podcast about creativity and finding time for it and making time for it and just feeling like, at least for Claire and I, that this was something that was like very much a part of our lives when we were younger. And then as we grew up, it was like as though we were meant to grow out of it or something. What advice or thoughts do you have on creating time or space or, you know, even just like finding that creative outlet if you've stepped away for a bit? I think so. Like I, for years I used to have, and this was before I really prioritized my art practice. I think it's really easy for other things to obviously to get in the way. It's like kind of like the one thing that you, it's easy to sort of put back burner it, but one for years, I had a new every year. My New Year's resolution was to pick one day every two weeks to do something completely unrelated to a paycheck. 
And so that was something that I started to enforce. And then the frequency of that sort of amped up over time. And now it's something that I'm like, now I, because my instinct was so strong to not prioritize my work. Now that I've managed to get myself in a space where I do, I'm really defensive around that time. Mm. So um, like I will, even though I'll do design projects, I try to commit to projects that like, I never, if I'm committed to something on an ongoing basis, I generally only say like, you know, I'm available for like, three days or four days of max, like per week, so that I have the rest of the time to to focus on artwork. And I think so much of it is like habit. So much of it is practice. So much of it is just like saying, you know, uh, this time is like blocked off. It's carved out. It's, you can't do any, like, this is going to be dedicated to some sort of creative pursuit. I know it might not work out. I know it might be a big failure, but this is the time and it's sacred and I'm going to sort of protect it. Thank you for That's that. That's extremely helpful. It really yeah, already is. I'm like, okay, same, okay, yeah, okay. I'm really, okay. <laughs> thank you for asking yes. the question, Erica. I needed that answer. <laughs> yeah, I. you've just inspired us for so long. And thank you for sharing your work with the world in the way that you do, which feels very like generous and accessible and just, yeah, enjoyable. Thank you. And thanks to you guys for doing what you do. I've, I've enjoyed your podcast. I've enjoyed all your ventures. Oh, thanks. That <laughs> it really means a lot. I, we're just like so in awe of you. So when you're like, oh, I like that podcast episode. I'm like, you're listening? Really? Someone <laughs> as smart and talented as you? So thank you. And everybody needs to go see the show. When does it close? January um, 23rd? Yes. January. Yeah. Erica's got I just all the details memorized. <laughs> just... <laughs> but yes, if you're in the Scottsdale area, go, go, go. That's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media, and we are so, so grateful to the talented team over there for helping us to make this podcast happen, especially our outstanding producer, Brian Peoples. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com. Find show notes and sign up for our newsletter at a thing or two HQ.com. If you love our show, consider supporting it by signing up for a secret menu at, you guessed it, a thing or two HQ.com.